0: Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet, a weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common, agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Idle Chatter. Ray Bohacks here, coming to you from snowy Cat Swamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. And I know a lot of parts of the country are being hit with a snow and ice storm, and so are we here. And uh, it's temperature's hovering just around 33, 34 degrees. Uh, we're getting a good deal of ice. They're saying all different uh, amounts of snow, so who knows, I guess anything between between zero... And 12 inches right so uh i'll let you know tomorrow when it's over but i uh hopefully things are going well for you guys and everyone that is listening and that you had a good week and you're excited about uh, this new week right and uh, this show usually will be posted on wednesday as i say so you're probably met already midweek if you were to listen to it when it's posted but whenever you listen to it i hope that you're having a great 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 week uh, i found i i came across some interesting tidbits about warren county where we farm and i wanted to share them with you i'm going to round the numbers you know we uh i'm on twitter as far as social media is concerned i'm not on anything else and i wasn't involved with that prior to uh starting the podcast and the website and i've enjoyed it i mean today ta- i mean I'm not, you know, I'm not enamored with it, but I enjoy it. It's fun. and I met a lot of great people. And a lot of those people actually came to see me last year at the Firestone booth at Commodity Classics. I was very happy about that. But I, uh, what I did is I put a survey up on Twitter about a month or so ago. And what I have found, you know, coming from the East Coast, that we have in relative terms small farms, not as small as they would have in Japan but compared to the people out west and in the midwest we have small acreage and i was always very interested when i speak to someone who is a fellow farmer about how large their operation is and i and i've i've noticed over time that i probably have a, a 50% rate of people that seem to feel uncomfortable when i ask them how many acres they farm and i'm only asking that because it's uh, you know, coming from a, from the East Coast, somebody says to me they farm 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 acres. I'm just in awe of that. And what I did find is that some people take, I don't want to say they become guarded when I say that, and other people you know, are very open. So oh, we farm 5,000 acres, we farm 10,000 acres. So I put a survey out on Twitter a few weeks ago, and it came back that 60% of the people um, that responded to the survey, I think I had 607 Responses or six hundred uh, replies to the survey, and a little bit more than sixty percent, let's say sixty percent, felt that was improper for a stranger to ask how many acres someone farms, and I was kind of taken back by that. Excuse I me, mean, it seems to be that the people on the East Coast don't seem to mind it. It seems that the guys with the larger acreage, about sixty percent of them, find that offensive. And uh, I found it very, very interesting. So from now on, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to ask anybody how many acres they farm, and like I say, it's not ha- doesn't have anything to do with with you know counting someone's money or counting their business. But it's just like I said, for me, it's a, it's being in awe of such uh, being a steward of such large land masses, and then also I think that it gives a you know it gives a better idea of you know how I could communicate with the person you know if they're farming larger acres or smaller acres, I could ask them questions or how they do this or that, whatever. But hey, it takes all kinds to make the world go round. But to that point, I just recently, uh, something came in the mail, had nothing to do with agriculture. We're in Warren County, as I say in the intro, Warren County, New Jersey, and I guess there's some kind of newsletter or something goes around. But I found out some interesting facts about Warren County that I did not know. And because, and I wanted to share them with you. And Warren County is, there's 21 counties in New Jersey and Warren County is number 19 in population. So there's two counties that have less population than we do in New Jersey. And, you know, keep in mind that New Jersey is the most densely populated state in the country. So to be the 19th out of 21, I think that's pretty good and pretty rural. And uh, so we have two major, I want to call them cities, towns in Warren County one is Hackettstown, which is outside of uh, where our farm is right outside of Hackettstown, about three or four miles away. And that probably has a population of about twelve to 13,000 people, Hackettstown per se. And then we're out a few miles outside of Hackettstown, so we're out in, in the country. And then there's another large town uh, called Phillipsburg, and they actually used to make locomotives there in Ingersoll Rand was there years ago, and sadly it's not. And there was a, it's right on the Delaware River, Phillipsburg, And on the other side of the river is eastern Pennsylvania. So it was Phillipsburg, eastern Pennsylvania. So they were like Minneapolis, St. Paul. that They were uh, sister cities. And a lot of people worked back and forth or lived on one side of the bridge and went to the other. But anyway, so that's a pretty large population over in Phillipsburg. It's much larger than it is uh, than Hackettstown. But anyway, so uh, to make a long story short... What I did find out that Warren County is, and I'm rounding these numbers, all of Warren County is approximately 240,000 acres. And, you know, there's people who have ranches out west that are larger than that, but 240,000 acres. But what I did enjoy reading is that approximately 80,000 acres of that 240,000 of Warren County are farmed. So that's actually pretty good. And then about 70,000 acres a forest, and about 30,000 acres of swamp. So if you were to add those all up, that Warren County in itself is very, very rural. And the whole county has, I think, 330,000 people in it. So that is the whole county. But I was very happy to hear that uh, there's approximately 80,000 acres farmed in Warren County. And because of the 70,000 acres of, of forest land in the county, we have a multitude of wildlife. I know on our farm, we have a lot of bears, black bears. I and mean, we have everything else. We have coyotes. We have fox. We have, uh, they claim that there's some mountain lions. I've never seen any uh, mountain lions. We have, you know, the normal raccoons, everything else, turtles, snapping turtles, what have you. So, well, I guess uh, I'm pretty blessed to be living in this little utopia of agricultural uh, community in Warren County outside of Hackettstown. So I just figured I would share that with you. And please know if I ever do meet you, and I happen to forget and ask how many acres you farm, just know that it's in awe of the stewardship that God has given you with that big piece of land. I'm not going to look, to look at counting, any, counting anybody's money or anything. So uh, that is basically it. Now what I wanted to talk to you about today also is two things. Well First, I want to tell you what our sub-subject is. The subject of this week's show is going to be tuning up the modern light duty diesel. And I'm going to emphasize the light duty, meaning like a pickup truck type of diesel, and um, not going to go into farm tractors, what have you. But the light duty diesel in trucks is probably the most complicated diesel in pickup trucks that you're going to find out there. So we will talk about the tune up on that. But prior to that... I want to introduce a new segment to the show. And this is going to come about every week. And I want to, and it's going to be called Bushels and Sense: C-E-N-T-S. So I want to welcome you, and it's going to be in the beginning of the show, so I want to welcome you to Bushels and Scents. It is a new addition to each week's show, as I said. I want to truly drive home the message that success on the farm or ranch is a three-legged stool. That is agronomy or animal husbandry marketing and machinery i feel the best way is to take real life scenarios and establish how a poor decision or an inaccurate diagnosis we've all made those of a machinery issue costs your operation money but instead of referencing just dollars i will reference it in crop corn at three dollars and fifty cents a bushel my hope is that this comparison in bushels drives home the point to my listeners and establishes that applying the lessons taught on idle chatter and on the farm machinery digest website so don't forget to go there you will make your operation more profitable i know that everyone listening does not grow corn so please convert the example to current prices for the commodity or crop that you raise and never forget it is not what you make what you keep that counts so now we're going to have an example you do not fluid test the hydraulic system before planting seasons you're not fluid testing the hydraulic system on your tractor the pump fails and you miss the optimum planting window by five days waiting for the new part reference from university data each day past the ideal planting date impacts yield by 0.5 percent so a half a percent. With a national average yield of 170 bushels per acre, this is corn, this would be a hit of 2.5 percent, so that's a half a percent multiplied by five days, or 4.25 bushels per acre. If you plant 1,000 acres of corn, then the potential yield loss would be 4,250 bushels, or $14,875. The cost of the repair would still be the same, but it would, have, it would have been performed before planting season since the failure would have been predicted by a $25 fluid analysis. By not fluid tested, testing, it costs you nearly $15,000. Let this not be you. You ready? Enough said. So that's going to be a new segment every week that's going to come into the show. And we will uh, be using that to, uh, to drive home the point that it is very, very important for you to be able to have efficiency in your farm shop if you want to have a truly profitable operation. So we are going to uh, be including that and hopefully you like it. Alrighty. So let me get my papers here together. And I had to clear my throat. You know, I, we have an eclectic audience and there's all different ages that are listening and all different types of agricultural operations. And I came of age when, and I was always I was, I was as awkward as could be as a kid. So I know a lot of people listening out there are really good sports people. They played football, they played baseball, basketball, all those things, forget about it. I played absolutely nothing. I'm nearsighted in one eye. I'm farsighted in the other. I have terrible depth perception, and I'm, I'm 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 totally uncoordinated as far as that's concerned. They put me behind the, the steering wheel, or put me behind a piece of with a piece of machinery, and I'm a completely different person. I have become an athlete with that machinery, but on my own, I'm a uh, I'm a klutz. All right, forget about it, and I'm not going to I'm not going to candy coat it. I am, so I was always the kid that no one ever wanted to pick or when they made teams in, in you know like an elementary school the teacher say okay let's form teams we're gonna play softball we're gonna play kickball dodgeball or whatever they call it i like dodgeball actually maybe because that's the name of a car but um but that was the kid that the teacher always had to force on on a team because they would pick everybody well, i want joey i want sam i want frank and then ray would be standing off on the side like a lost puppy dog and then no one would want me and to tell you the truth to the truth be told that I probably would have preferred that, they didn't, that the teacher just let me set it on the side. I didn't think of that as a penalty of being left out, that I, I was not good at sports, so not being good at something and being forced to do it is no fun. But I was always into machinery, always into agriculture, always into cars, into motors and what have you. And because of that, I always would read adult material, you know, Popular Mechanics, Popular Science, Hot Rod Magazine, what have you. So the point that I'm, I'm making here is that I was automotive and machinery aware at a very young age. It doesn't make me, I'm saying I'm any smarter than anybody else, but whereas a lot of, most children were not interested in that at five, six, seven, eight years old, I was. So that is something where it's So what it in essence does is give me a very broad background that is, that, that 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 doesn't uh, coordinate with my age, because it, we're mo- some some younger people got into machinery, got into cars when they're sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. I already had tw- ten or twelve years into it, of reading about it, you know, looking at it, studying it, being involved with my dad with machinery. So that so that, that so I came of automotive age, <clears throat> excuse <clears throat> excuse me, machinery age, very very young in my life very when i was very young so i remember very distinctly that when the farm engine started to transition from gasoline to diesel power and then in the in the 1960s i would say because i wasn't born in the 50s so in the 60s and 70s where you would be <clears> oh <throat> excuse me it would be hard to get a gasoline-powered tractor, gasoline-powered, actually a neighbor of ours had a 73 case combine. I forgot what model number it was because I was a kid. A four-row head case combine had a slant six Chrysler in it. That thing was as sweet as could be. But anyway, I remember that a lot of the advertising for diesel-powered equipment and also at that same time trucks were transitioning from com- from spark ignition engines gasoline engines to diesel engines and maybe 10 or 15 years later in the 70s when diesels were starting to come out in automotive automotive applications namely the oldsmobile diesel but there are other diesels volkswagen came out with a diesel uh peugeot they're not here anymore they're supposed to be joining with chrysler now so maybe they'll come back peugeot a french company had a lot of diesels and that was, that was prompted by the energy crisis of 1974. But the common denominator from what the tractor industry, the farm equipment manufacturers, the truck the truck manufacturers, and then the, the personal use vehicle automobile manufacturers, they had a common advertising theme. And uh, they usually spoke about the efficiency of a diesel engine, but they often spoke more about the lack of tune-ups and the lack of maintenance that the diesel engine required. Now, keep in mind that this was at a time when gasoline engines had breaker points, and then maybe in the mid-1970s went to electronic ignition, but breaker points, a condenser, uh, uh, and a carburetor. So the gasoline engines were very, very service-intensive. You had to clean the carburetor to adjust the carburetor you had to change the breaker points so all that came into play and they would advertise the diesel cup that people that were trying to push diesel technology would say no tune-ups and i remember even volkswagen had a would have nothing to do with diesel but they had an ad in the late 60s or early 70s because they were air cooled and they went on the uh, square back volkswagen a square back and fastback they called them type threes uh they had went to fuel injection. So I remember showing this ad to my father, I think it was in Popular Mechanics or Popular Science magazine, and the ad for the Volkswagen fast pack said, no carburetor, it's, it said no radiator, no, no, fan, no, no water pump, no coolant, and it was something else. And I said, geez, how can this thing run? And he explained to me that it was an air-cooled engine and it had fuel injection in lieu of a carburetor. So the diesel people... Or the people pushing diesel is a better way for me to say it. Were trying to drive home the fact that you did not have to truly have a. It wasn't a maintenance maintenance intensive engine. You put fuel in and change oil and some filters, and away you go. Because the injection pump, once it was set, you weren't going. You weren't going to set it again for for possibly for the life of the engine. Back then, we there really was not a problem with the injectors maybe 10,000 hours later or half a million miles later problem with injector but there really wasn't much going on there so as you change your your filters your fuel and water separator change the oil and bake and that's it no real maintenance as far as valve adjustment was concerned well that's more of an engine factor than the fuel type the the type of fuel it runs on so that may have been but they really pushed the fact that there was no tune-up and then at The diesel engine stayed like that, whereas we would call it a pump-line nozzle engine. Excuse me, it stayed like that. And then the gasoline engine started to advance more and eventually got to the point where it also was fuel-injected. They did away with the distributor, did away with the breaker point. So in essence, what had happened was that the gasoline engine over time became less uh sensitive to maintenance or less maintenance less demanding of maintenance and then the diesel engine actually kind of flip-flop with the gasoline engine because you have the modern diesel engine in the light duty pickup truck and it's almost a polar opposite of what was back years ago and <clears throat> excuse me I just cleared my throat but whereas today's gasoline engines in essence You hardly do anything to them, but the light-duty diesel is the complete opposite of what was first touted 30, 40 years ago. They became much more maintenance, uh, demanding of maintenance. So that is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the light-duty diesel and the modern light-duty diesel and the need to perform a tune-up on it. But a tune-up is going to be different than it was on a gasoline engine years ago. There's no spark plugs, there's no break points, there's no distributor. And I'm going to skip the fact about changing the filters. I think everybody that's listening to this show realizes that there's an air filter, there's a fuel filter, there's a fuel-water separator that needs to be maintained. So that, ha- that hasn't changed. But what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the other aspects of what you need to do to keep that light-duty diesel in a pickup truck or a van SUV, a tip-top performance, the greatest efficiency, and also the minimal amount of maintenance cost. So that is the what the key is. Because as I said in the bushels and cents, it's not what you make; it's what you keep. And you know you don't want to put a lot of money into unnecessary repairs in this pickup truck. Because as we, if you've had the misfortune. Of having to do that to put a major repair or even a minor repair on those engines is that everything starts with at least four digits. You're not opening that hood for less than a thousand dollars, and usually it goes almost up to five digits. If you wipe out the injection pump, the uh, the with the common rail system and the injectors, you're talking five, six, seven thousand dollars. I mean, and if the turbo was bad, you're talking a few thousand dollars. So the thing basically is that they went from being so forgiving to very to becoming a very demanding mistress and now granted these new diesels whether it's the ford power stroke the cummins in the ram or the uh, duramax in the general motors products i'm not going to deny that they're sweet running engines they make a ton of power they get great fuel economy for what they produce and the power they produce, and they, um, they're quiet. I mean, they just, they're just very, very, very highly refined and defined engines, refined and defined engines. But that to achieve that came with a great level of complexity and also made them, to a certain extent, a prima donna. It's like I grow sweet corn. You know, I go to these seminars, and I listen to people talk, and they tell you, well, you know, you should pick out this hybrid, this, this, and that, and they're talking all about field corn. And you, know, that's great, but you can't do that with sweet corn because people eat in sweet corn, so taste, flavor, everything has to come into play. I can't pick a hybrid based upon its cold weather tolerance, like a field corn guy can. So a lot of guys say, "Oh, I plant in April when the ground is real cold, When I put this and this and I put this seed treatment on, and the seed is you know very tolerant to cold weather, cold soil." Well, sweet corn is a don prima donna. I mean, it's it's a very 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 demanding mistress and if you treat it right it really really you know pulls for you but it's very very unforgiving so excuse me so uh the light duty diesel is the same way i mean when it bites it bites you hard buddy i mean it'll take a, it'll take a good chunk out of you so what i want to try to do in this show is give you some tips that will allow you to do some some very easy maintenance on these engines that will pr- improve its efficiency its performance and its longevity so the first thing that i want to discuss with you is voltage sensitivity whereas you had an old pump line nozzle diesel engine it could give a damn less whether you took the battery and the alternator out and threw it in a ditch all right, once it got going it was compression ignition and it had no computer on it It was strictly all mechanical So the modern tier three and tier four, the modern light duty diesel, common rail injection system, computer controlled, no mechanical controls, computer controlled is very, very, very voltage sensitive. So forgetting about, we did a show on charging circuits and stuff a while back, but you know, it's going to be very sensitive to alternator output. So if you have a diode that's going bad, in the alternator, it's gonna definitely affect how it runs because years ago they used to say with computers, garbage in, garbage out. Well, if you're putting unrectified AC into that microprocessor, that ECU, that engine control unit and uh, a dirty signal, then what's going to happen is it will impact the decision-making process and how that engine runs. But that's more of a component. That's really not a tune-up type of thing. So, but I did want to establish that. But the, uh, what I do want to bring up is that as a battery gets older, most of these have dual batteries and the cells become sulfated in that battery. So they, 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 they it's, it's called sulfated. What will actually happen is they'll build a, a, almost like a plaque in your arteries. It'll build, it'll build sulfur onto the plates and will make the battery less effective and less efficient so a sulfated cell in a battery will drive or cause a light duty diesel to not have its full potential performance and i'm not saying maybe the full horsepower but it will run raggy it has the potential of running raggy it has the potential of of uh, not starting easily it would be like an old gasoline motor Just this thing needs a tune-up so it would be a little bit lazy maybe not as responsive so keep in mind that a sulfated battery, a battery that's, that's already on its way out, it's not dead, it still cranks it, it's on its way out, will it have the potential to impact how this light-duty diesel runs. So what part of your tune-up regimen or procedure should be if you is to have the battery slash batteries in a light-duty diesel every three or four years load tested. And a load test, which puts a lo- which uses a car used to use a carbon pile. They may do it a little bit differently now in a modern machine. They put a load. It puts a load on the battery and main- and puts an amperage load, which is usually fifty percent of its cold cranking amps, and monitors the voltage output of the battery. So if it's a nine hundred amp battery then you need to put 50, it'll put 50, you'll set the machine to put the load tester to put for approximately 450 amps. And that battery should maintain above 10.6 volts with 450 amps. And the thing is that if that battery doesn't maintain that, then it is on its way out and being sulfated. Now, interestingly enough, is that usually a sulfated battery has a higher Uh, Higher at rest voltage than 12.6 volts, and we won't get into that now. But something you to know. So the thing basically is part of your tune-up regimen, and this doesn't need to be done yearly. Probably three, four, five years out, you want to load test the batteries and make sure that they are up to full capacity because the system is going to monitor the alternator output and the charging voltage, and all the decisions to run that Tier 4 motor the gasoline to run that tier four motor is voltage and that voltage is gonna come from the alternator through the battery so anything that is skewing there will be will impact the way the engine runs and its performance the other thing which is common sense is dirty terminals and dirty grounds that the the light duty diesel is not going to be forgiving of dirty battery terminals and dirty grounds. So your first tune-up procedure is to make sure that the batteries are, are up to snuff and that the connections are all clean. The next thing is that whereas an older diesel pump-line nozzle used a injection pump, what's going to happen on this and on a modern engine, they're going to take a whole suite of sensors And these sensors are going to take data in what's happening with the engine and it is going to make a decision process. And one of the decision processes is how long to open the injectors and when to open them. And one of the main components of that is what is called the mass airflow sensor. And it's a sister of what is used on a gasoline engine. And so the mass airflow sensor is in the intake duct and it's usually going to be after the turbocharger and before the throttle body, and we're going to discuss that in a second, uh, is that, and that sensor is going to read the mass of the incoming air. And it's going to use that to determine the load on the engine and to fuel and time the engine. Whereas a spark ignition engine has the timing of the spark plug with a diesel. It's going to be the timing or when in the crankshaft's arc of rotation that the injector pulse is going to be initiated. The fuel pulse is going to be initiated. So now what you have to do is you have to make sure that there are no leaks prior or after the mass airflow sensor but specifically after the mass airflow sensor because air would be introduced into the engine that the sensor is not monitoring and that is called false air also what happens is that the sensors have a an element in it a sensing unit that's why i call a sensor right because i don't want to use the same word twice but it's easiest way to describe it and this sensing wire the sensing element becomes polluted just from 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 impurities in the air i mean it could be from smog it could be from dust what have you and what you need to do is that you need to take that sensor out and you need to spray it with a proper cleaner now it needs to be a mass airflow sensor cleaner And so what you do during your tune-up, you're going to make sure all of the clamps are snug. You're going to inspect the hoses for no leaks. The clamps are snug. You're going to remove the mass airflow sensor cleaner, a mass airflow sensor, and you're going to spray it. You're going to bathe it, wash it. It looks like a can of carburetor cleaner, but don't use carburetor cleaner or brake cleaner. It's mass airflow sensor cleaner. And a company called CRC was one of the first ones to actually do this or make a product like that. And that's the one I use, but there are other brands also. And it's going to wash the contaminants off that mass airflow sensor element, the sensing element, so it could accurately determine the load. That would be, that's a a key, key. Now, do it all on your gasoline engines also, but in your light-duty diesel, that is going to be very important for you to have proper everything starting drivability performance fuel economy emissions what have you because if it's if you know if that sensor is skewed because of dirt that's like reading something with a busted micrometer the reading or looking outside in the the thermometer that's wrong not busted but wrong so you say oh it's not look at it it's 72 degrees out and it's snowing well obviously that's not the case right so the snow is telling you it's not 72 degrees, maybe it's 27. So you take that out, you buy a can of that cleaner when you're in town. It, it's about eight dollars for the can, it'll probably last you two years. So take that. That's part of your tune-up regimen is to clean the mass airflow sensor. The next thing is that the modern diesel has a throttle body years ago. A diesel had no throttle when you were moving the, the throttle lever or the gas pedal or the hand throttle on a tractor you were moving a lever inside you you were changing the fueling in the injector pump but a modern diesel has a throttle body akin to a gasoline engine and that throttle plate will get dirty because of egr exhaust gas recirculation and then overlap from the camshaft so it is imperative that you keep that throttle plate clean. And what you would need to do is you would need to remove the intake duct. I usually do this when I'm doing the mass airflow sensor, so I have to take things apart twice. And you'll have the engine off, obviously take the intake duct off. You get a clean rag, and you could buy a can of throttle body cleaner. Most cleaners today are carburetor slash throttle body cleaner. And you'd spray the throttle body, and I would take a rag a clean rig and, and clean clean the throttle bore and open the throttle plate. It's going to be drive-by-wire. We did a, um, a show on that a few a month or two back. It's going to be drive-by-wire, but you could actually take the throttle plate and push it open with your finger and you're going to spray in there and you want to keep that throttle plate clean so that when it actually is closed, it's not closing prematurely because it doesn't have corrosion, not corrosion, gum and built up on it And when it's at one percent throttle angle it's still passing air that way the throttle plate actually the bore actually becomes smaller and the throttle plate becomes larger when it gets when it gets sludge and and gum on it so like a carburetor so you want to keep that clean so you're going to clean the mass airflow sensor then you're going to clean the throttle body and you're going to go around this whole engine as part of your tune-up and what you're going to do is you're going to make sure everything is snug on the intake track and what have you. So you just snug up all the bolts, the clamps, what ha- and that's it. So make sure there's no false air, no air leaks. The next thing that I suggest that you do is inspect the EGR valve. You don't have to take it off, inspect the EGR valve, but it's very, very important. Most of these engines have what's, it's a cooled EGR if you look back in the archives I did a show on EGR exhaust gas recirculation and because these engines are so EGR dependent for oxides of nitrogen emission reduction that they have a cooled EGR. Now in most applications that I've seen and maybe there's one that isn't that it has a separate cooling system for the EGR so it does not use the engine coolant to cool the EGR. And what will happen there is that you want to make sure that you service that coolant. And people are good about servicing the coolant on the engine, but they're not good about servicing the coolant on the EGR system. And you need to service that coolant because otherwise what's going to happen, that heat exchanger for the EGR is going to fail and you're going to have the potential of getting a coolant leak into the engine and depending upon the coolant like you either have steam or you could actually hydro lock the engine so the thing base is part of your tune-up procedure is to make sure that the coolant is up to snuff in the egr circuit and then if you want to you could also look at the egr and take the egr valve off and clean it but that's maybe a hundred hundred fifty thousand miles you're not going to do this every you know uh, every year with the egr but you want to always don't forget about that coolant so like i said things are a little bit different uh a little bit different with it with a, the, these diesels it's not a one-to-one we're tuning up an old 72 ford gasoline engine the other thing that i want you to always use is to treat your fuel with a additive that has multiple modes of action like a like a herbicide that has multiple modes of action and i want you to use an injector cleaner because the injectors will build deposits. Now, I know I hear somebody saying, I use I use uh, premium diesel fuel. Well, even if you use premium diesel fuel, I'm not going to deny that premium diesel fuel is a much higher quality, a better product. It's got a, a different additive package than one of the mill diesel fuel. But the fact is that that fuel becomes corrupted from the leaves that refinery, that premium diesel fuel refinery, the leaves before it gets to your farm. Of course, it goes in through transportation, goes through multiple different storage tanks, is hot and cold, wicks and moisture, wicks and dirt. The guy's filling the tank, it's raining, it's snowing, he it leaves the cap off, what have you. So I suggest, I love a premium diesel fuel as a base product, but I also like to additize it up, up, up uh, additize that. Above that, just like you know, to make an analogy to crops, I use Acuron, right, as a pre-emergence weed killer, but then you know everybody, you know, Syngenta and other people told me, you know, to 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 heat to, to heat that Acuron up a little bit with a pint or two per acre of Atrazine. So yeah, I'm using a great product, Acuron, but now I'm heating it up a little bit. I'm dolling it up with a little bit of Atrazine in there so that's so use a premium diesel i commend you for using a premium diesel i love a premium diesel but don't think that you don't need to put any additives in it beyond that because the main reason is that fuel has been com- becomes corrupted in transit before it gets to your farm so it's very important for you to keep the injectors clean because that's where it's all about. Just like about a gasoline engine. If you're not breaking that fuel apart, if you're not delivering that fuel and atomizing that fuel properly inside that engine, then all bets are off on how that engine is going to run. And that is a that is a constant tune-up procedure. So additize your fuel for lubricity because you don't want the the uh, the high pressure pump and the injectors to wear. Excuse me, because of moisture and a lack of lubricity in the fuel, and you have to remember, as I said, if that fuel gets some moisture in during transit, you killed the lubricity in it, whatever little lubricity it had. So, and you want to keep those injectors clean so they have a constant spray pattern, so they're spraying as designed, and that is the most important thing. That's a uh, that in the mass airflow sensor is going to be paramount to your tune up of this engine. And if it's a Huey type of engine, which uses oil, high pressure engine oil, and to, to, to operate the injector, then you wanna use some sort of stiction reducer or stiction eliminator in the engine oil. And it's Hot Shot, is one brand, there's a number of brands now, because that injector has a fuel side and an oil side. And they're both very, very important to keep that engine running properly. So if so, part of your tune-up procedure would be to always keep the fuel additized and then if it's a Huey system, every once in a while, every few thousand, every thousand hours, two thousand hours, whatever. If it's a road truck, would have you, all right? You want to, you want to put that um, that stiction uh, anti-stiction treatment in the oil. Now keep in mind that. I don't know of a light-duty diesel Tier Four modern diesel that has a Huey injector. There's none. There is none. The older Power Strokes, which are an elect, which had a Huey system prior to going to a piezo injector. Some people call it piezo. Some people call it piezo piezo type of injector, which is a completely different internal design a huey system but the idea of keeping the injector pintle clean from deposits by putting an in-tank fuel additive is just as paramount with a piezo as it is with a huey but with a huey so an older power stroke the original power strokes had a huey injector in it and you would have to put that additive that stiction additive into the oil and follow the procedure you run it for so long and then you dump the oil out of it you know keep in mind also divest for a second is that you know a lot of farm equipment uses a lot of cat engines use huey injectors so there's you know the show today is about light duty diesel but i want to be able to touch on things that can help you regardless so you have a you have an engine you could you know, have like a challenger a cat challenger uh, uh track tractor that has a huey system you want to put that stiction items that stiction uh chemical in that oil and keep the oil side of the injector functioning properly and not sticking and they're just as important and they're just as important to keep the injectors clean but today we're talking about the light duty diesel all right the next thing that i want to want to explain to you is that many engines today are using a variable vane turbocharger and what happens with the variable-vane turbocharger is there's rings on the turbine side, and what it does, is it, it tricks the turbo, the turbo into thinking that it's smaller than it is. So, so, so to get quick spool-up and quick throttle response, it, it acts like a smaller turbo, and then as, the, as, as power and airflow is needed, these vanes move. It's called the VVT, variable-vane t- variable turbocharger. And they have a cell node on and they have a sensor. They're very, very reliable, and the only thing that comes into play, and this gets back to you know, this is almost like like you know nutrient tie up in crops. You say, well, I got this, you know, I got those this these, this fertility out here, but the crop isn't you know isn't looks look lousy. It's not it's not showing it because it's tied up. Well, the thing is that by you doing everything that I said right from the beginning, having good voltage, clean mass airflow sensor, clean throttle body, EGR clean fuel injectors treated fuel you are going to end up building a minimal amount of carbon deposits on that vvt ring and that means that vvt ring is going to go and it's going to slide and work and be in a position that it is supposed to be in for that load on the engine and so if you do all of that then you are going to have minimal maintenance on the VVT. If you don't do that, like if you don't brush your teeth or if you don't fertilize your crop crop and you mine all the fertility out of the soil or you're constantly plowing and killing the soil structure, killing the microbes, killing the, the tilth of the soil, then you're not going to have good water infiltration. You're not going gonna to have your carbon, your, um, your magnesium calcium ratios or off the soil is going to get hard, it's going to puddle, it's going to do all this, it's going to compact. Well, same thing is going to happen with this. But keep in mind that that vvt those rings over time whether it's a hundred thousand miles or three hundred thousand miles depending upon how good you are with everything else is that you're going to have to take that turbine side which is the hot side of the turbocharger off and you're going to have to take those take that that housing off and you're going to have to clean it and clean the carbon out of it so those rings move back and forth there's a solenoid that moves it. we did a show a couple of weeks ago about solenoids all right so the thing is that you're going to need to do that but my goal is that if you do everything else that i said up until this particular point then the amount of carbon deposits on that VVT, unless you have a lot of short trip cycles and a lot of idling with this engine, is that will be very minimal. And you could probably go 250, 300,000 miles without having to remove that turbine housing and cleaning that variable vane rings. But keep in mind, that doesn't mean that you need a new turbocharger for $3,000. It means that, you know, that the rings are carboned up. So if it sets a trouble code for it or the power is down or it's real lazy where it doesn't want to build boost because the rings it feels good upstairs or it feels good downstairs and the power ramps off downstairs when you put a load on, it's because those rings are most likely carboned up. So it's something to keep in mind. But the goal is, like the strategic air command, their their goal was to never have to fire a shot, right? So your goal is to do everything else on this tune-up procedure so you never have to take that turbocharger apart. And then the last thing... That I want to discuss is that unlike diesels before, believe it or not, the modern diesel has an oxygen sensor, at least one oxygen sensor, and and that is used as a as a um, as a uh, overseer to what's happening. It's used a lot for each job for for the fuel delivery. So keep in mind that an an oxygen sensor. Then again, if you do everything I said and have good combustion. And every what have you inside the engine? You're not the EGR cooler is not putting antifreeze into into the combustion chamber and coating the sensor with silica. But the oxygen sensor is considered a consumable, just like on a gasoline engine. So the thing is that keep in mind that's the auditor, that's the that's the accountant that's going to tell the computer whether things are going right or wrong. So over time, you will need to replace that oxygen sensor. The sixty-four thousand dollar question is when. You'll need to do it, as I said you know, a second ago, depends upon the use of the vehicle and how well you keep everything else. But probably if you get to 100, 150,000 miles on this engine, uh, it probably would not be a bad idea to put a new oxygen sensor in it just because like a tire, it's gonna wear it. It doesn't wear it, What it degrades, it does what they call skews, that it's, it's no longer in calibration. But you would want, and if the engine is idling a lot or you're using a truck to feed cattle or short trips, then maybe you want to put it in less than 100,000 miles. But I do strongly recommend that you go to the dealer and buy an OE oxygen sensor, original equipment, because a lot of the aftermarket oxygen sensors are not calibrated for a particular piece of equipment. They use a generic calibration and it kind of screws everything up. It has the potential to do that. So let's recap your tune up you want to be realize that the system is voltage sensitive the batteries are good not sulfated the connections are clean you want to clean the mass airflow sensor you want to clean the throttle body you want to make sure the egr cooler is has the proper uh, maintenance as far as its coolant is concerned you want to make sure all your induction hoses are tight so there's no false air getting into the engine you want to cle- put a fuel injector cleaner in. if it's a huey system you want to put an oil cleaner in it also a stiction element and so a fuel cleaner injector cleaner will go in the tank and a stiction product will go into the oil follow the instructions because you don't want to keep that in there with the stiction product too long you want to treat your fuel even if you're using premium fuel you want to be cognizant that if you do everything right that there'll be a minimum amount of carbon built on the variable vein of the turbocharger but if the engine starts to feel feel lazy or feel different perform differently there's a very good possibility that those veins or those rings is starting to stick and over time you're going to have to change that oxygen sensor as a maintenance item so that is it. I would clean the mass airflow sensor and the throttle body every time that you do an oil change on that, on that on that truck. The other things, you'll go around snug stuff up, put eyeballs on it. Maybe after three or four years, check the batteries, put eyeballs on the cable, treat your fuel with every tank if you always treat the fuel and it has an injector cleaner in there, then you won't have to worry about it. If you're using an additive, a lubricity additive and an anti-gel that doesn't have an injector cleaner, then treat it every, maybe every two or three, every oil change with a high dose of injector cleaner. Follow the instruction instructions with Huey, uh, with the stiction product that usually doesn't need to be done too often, but you don't you don't want to let those deposits build up because then they will not be able to come come loose already and they will not be able to be freed and that's basically it so it's really not a lot of maintenance but it's it's maintenance it's maintenance that needs to be done for you to be able to get a best performance minimal emissions minimum amount of regens we'd even talk about that minimum amount of regens and make this a trouble-free engine for two, three hundred thousand miles, and most importantly, reliable with a minimal, minimal, minimal amount of uh, with a minimal amount of downtime and expense. In it. And that's what it's all about. I don't want you to uh, I don't want you to uh, be putting money into something uh, seven, 000, eight thousand dollars for injectors and a, and a and a common rail pump because you didn't additize the fuel. So I don't want that. I want you to put that into your farm where it makes you money. You ready? So that is it. If you have any questions, any concerns, please feel free to contact me at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com. And now we are going to go into our toolbox test question. We're on test. We're still on test number two. And it's going to be question number two. But first, we're going to have techs. Rubinowitz from Ripsaw Records. He's the Hot Rod Man, and he knows all about tuning things up good. So come on, Tex, let's tune this baby up. Let's go. Well, I'm a rolling daddy with a mean machine. It's gotta be an motor that sure is clean. I'm a hot rod man. Yeah, I'm a hot rod man. Well, look out, little mama, gonna get you if I can. Thank you, Tex. That's Tex Rubinowitz, as I said, the Hot Rod Man on Ripsaw Records. We will very shortly have a new website, and I will tell you about that, and you could go to and hear the whole song. I only pay, play like 20 seconds of it, but I think the song is like a little bit more than two minutes. It really is a great tune. righty. so we're on toolbox test number two, question two, and as I always say, don't worry about whether it's Farm or ABC, worry about what the right answer is. All right, you finally have the chance to go into town and get new tires for your wife's SUV. When the tire shop pulls off the front wheels, they notice that only the outside brake pad on the left caliper is almost metal to metal. The shop owner suggests installing only new pads since the rotors look good. He says that with your vehicle, it is very easy since the pads slide in from the top without having to remove the caliper. You give the go ahead and the work is done. Is the problem solved or will the one pad wear prematurely again? Okay, Farmer A states that all disc brake pads wear unevenly and there is nothing you can do about it. Farmer B says that the brake rotor is uneven and wearing out the one pad faster. Farmer C says that the caliper is not returning and the one pad is always rubbing slightly. And Farmer D tells you that the piston in the caliper is leaking and only the one pad is stopping the SUV. So basically, you, you pull the tires off the of new tires, the one pad, the one pad on the caliper, the outside brake pad on the left caliper is almost metal to metal, that wore out, the other pads still look good. So you're going to have to tell me which farmer is right, but first we're going to have our special delivery section. And special delivery is brought to us by Firestone Ag. And they're a company that was founded by Harvey Firestone. And you know, as I said before, you know, that mindset that was that that, that, that Harvey Firestone had to put the, tar- the farmer on pneumatic tires is still alive today in Firestone Ag. And, it, you know, it's represented by the 23-degree tread bar, their new Evo line of tires, the AD2 technology, which is the IF and VF tires, and then also, also the, the new line of replacement tracks, the Firestone of tracks. You know, the soil, you know, like we were talking about before, the soil is the lifeblood of your farm. Trust it only to Firestone. And I'm going to challenge you. When you need tires, I know you don't, it's not something you buy every day. But when you need tires, I'm going to challenge you to go look at the Firestone Ag offerings. And I would be very, very, very surprised if once you looked at them with an open mind that you did not become a Firestone farm. And as they say, farm hard. So that's what we want you to do. All righty, so our test, uh, test, our uh, a special delivery letter. Uh, I have to get the right thing here. I don't have the right thing. Okay, this is not the right paper. That's not good. Okay, what I do with it. If you hear my paper shuffling around here, that's, um, that's what I'm doing. I have my letter here. All right, this microphone picks up everything. So uh, prior to this, I was very paranoid about making any noise. But now I, I figured, hey, I'd rather give you a good show and don't worry about the paper noise. All right, so this is the letter. And I, 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 I printed this one out with a larger font so I could read it. Hello and greeting from Zimbabwe. Well, that's great. The gentleman's from Africa. I found your website and podcast about six months ago and has become a true learning experience for me and those that work on my family's plantation. I hope that you can help with a problem. I am having with a 1972 Fargo 100 pickup truck with a Slant 6. It was made in Michigan, but was shipped to Africa via Chrysler Canada, when new and it was badged as a Fargo instead of a Dodge, but it is the same. As an aside to that, I know I have a lot of listeners up in Canada, they're definitely familiar with the Fargo line. We never truly had that in the United States, but there was, and I don't know what, what the politics of it was, but there, there were Dodge trucks made in the United States and they were badged as Fargo's. They were 100% the same, except staying Dodges at Fargo. So back to his letter. My family purchased the truck new in 1971 and had always been in our plantation. Recently, it tends to burn ignition points at a rapid rate. About one year ago, I replaced the ballast resistor since it failed. The engine runs fine, but the breaker points only last about three months and fail. If you have any thoughts, please share them with me since the truck is used daily and it is an important part of our business and I am tired of changing the points. I don't blame you. Slant six was a pain in the neck. I always had to pull the distributors out because I'm near sight in one eye, as I said, and far sight in the other. Plus I have 2,400 vision in one eye so I can never see in there to put the screws in the points and put the field gauge in. So uh, he's tired of changing the points uh, before they would last about two years and his name is John Castle. And he's from Zimbabwe, Africa. And I want to thank you so much for listening from there. And, I, and that sounds like a really sweet truck. It's been in your family since 1971, 1972 Fargo. What I would say to you, sir, my, my thought is that the ballast resistor that you change does not have enough resistance in it. And you didn't mention anything about changing the coil. Uh, so I'm assuming it's the original coil or a coil that worked fine prior to you having this problem with the points and i would say that the uh, the ballast resistor does not have enough resistance and it's putting too much too much voltage through the breaker points and that's why they're burning out prematurely now the best thing for you to do and i tried to look and i didn't have a spec for an old chrysler breaker point system but something tells me that they're probably about a half of ohm resistance. But what you could do is put a, put a new set of points in. And with the key on engine off, check the resistance of the ballast. And if I happen to find a, a specification on a 1972 ballast, I will email you because I have your email address and let you know. But the other thing that you could do, so you want to check the ballast resistor resistance you unplug it and just go across it with an ohm meter and then you want to plug that back in and you want to check the voltage on the positive side of the coil so the ballast the ignition the voltage comes through the ballast and goes to the positive side of the coil and then the breaker points go to the negative side of the coil so what you would do is you would start the slant six up you'd put a voltmeter on the positive terminal positive end of the voltmeter on the positive terminal of the coil and then you would ground the other end of the voltmeter and you would run the engine and you would see the voltage with the proper resistance which i believe is around a half ohm but i may be wrong uh you would probably have about seven to eight volts on the ignition coil going to the ignition coil and you're probably going to find that you have nine or ten volts there to tell you the truth it'll run really great with nine or ten volts to the coil but the points will not last and i really think that you just have a ballast that is made incorrectly and does not have enough resistance to drop that voltage down to about seven to eight volts which is the the the, the sweet spot to get enough coil saturation to have the engine perform properly but to also to also uh give breaker point life you know when years ago would when you know guys are hot rodding cars they would take the ballast out and they would run full voltage to the coil to the breaker points they would burn up very quickly i mean not three months they would run the motor for three months they'd burn up in a couple of runs at the drag strip or was a you know roundy round type of dirt track car it would burn up quickly but you get a lot more coil saturation so i think that's why your truck runs fine probably actually runs a little bit better but you could confirm that by the voltage at the coil and if you do not cannot find the spec or i can't find the spec on the ballast resistor check yours see if you can get another one check that one but the end result will be what voltage is going to the coil that's the end of the line so if you get around seven eight volts to the coil and i wouldn't be surprised if you have nine ten of close to 11 volts now uh then your point life will go back up and you could have that dodge serve you for many 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 more years all right. So if you have any questions on that, please contact me. And thank you so much for listening all the way from Zimbabwe, Africa. And let me, so now we're going to go back to our toolbox test as we get ready to close today, close the show. And remember you had a caliper that was wearing one pad on the outside. So I'm going to get you your, uh, the response here. So let's see what we have here. All righty. So let me get to the proper page, which would be not, which is not good here. I'm flipping a lot of papers around today. Okay, so Farmer C is correct. Farmer C knows the reason why the outside pad is worn. A brake caliper with only one piston is a floating design. And last week we did a show on, or a week or two we did a show on brakes. A floating design and needs to return when the brake pedal is released. The hydraulic piston, the inner pad, is returning, but the pins or bracket that the caliper floats on is either dirty, rusty, or lacks lubrication. The outside pad is dragging slightly. Since the shop owner only slid in new pads, the problem will still be present. The outside pad will drag since the proper procedure of taking the caliper off cleaning, lubricating, the the slide points, the movement points was not performed. So all he basically did was put a new set of pads in and you are going to have uneven wear. So that is the answer. So whenever you look at a brake caliper, you need to have even, even wear. So listen, I'm gonna thank you so much for, for listening to me today. So listen, right? Listening to me, the hot rod farmer. And I wanna thank you for letting me share a little bit about Warren County and and uh, our agricultural community here and how rural it is even though it's the most uh, populated state in uh, new jersey most populated state and i want you to know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved beloved america so you have a great week and listen and please tune in next week thank you so much have a blessed day bye bye